Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We knew she was crazy and we said she was crazy. We totally bought into her view of what our family was, how she was. She defined everything in the family and we bought into it even though we felt bad, you know, there was like a real conflict between how I felt inside and what I was being told was going on. Right. And I bought into what I was being told because I wanted that love so badly. And I kept thinking if I just try harder, if I get her the right gift, if I can just be different, maybe she's going to start caring for me. If I can be perfect enough, maybe she'll start caring for me the way I need to be cared for. And that really caused me to sort of like abandon myself in many ways. I wasn't paying attention to like, what did I want? I was paying attention to what she wanted. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, 
I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story, what happened to them, how they got through, and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey beautiful souls, have you ever had to deal with a narcissist in your life? I have and it's not pretty. The narcissist can be an extremely insidious presence, highly manipulative, cunning, emotionless. They manipulate everything and feel nothing for their targeted person. They see themselves as superior and they exaggerate their self-importance and they'll take advantage of you to get what they want. They have significant interpersonal problems, always belittling others to make themselves appear better. And underneath all of this, they can be deeply insecure and vulnerable. Basically, they ruin lives. And personally, I think the only way to deal with a narcissist is to turn around and run in the opposite direction at a million miles an hour and never look back. But what about if the narcissist is your mum and because you grow up with her, you don't know any different. The life she has created around you is just your world. Things seem really off at times and what you're told doesn't feel right in your gut. It doesn't fit, but she's your mum. And so you try to work with it, be on her side, even when she's doing things that appear crazy and you spend your whole life trying to get her to love you, but you can never be good enough for her love. You can never be perfect enough for her love because the narcissist doesn't love. This week I'm chatting with Terry and Terry tried for many years to have that elusive relationship with her narcissistic mother. She wanted it so badly, but it proved impossible. Please join me in hearing Terry's story. Tell me a little bit about growing up for you because your family moved around a lot, didn't they? Yeah, they, they really did. And, you know, actually my mom was in high school when she had me. She was she got pregnant when she was 16 years old and she um, had to drop out of high school after 10th grade she and my dad got married and my dad he didn't have a great job at the time but he did end up getting a job with the telephone company one thing about my dad is he there he is very handy and uh, he got a job working on the construction crews that at the time were doing a a massive um, construction project where they were actually burying all all the long distance cables So the reason that we ended up moving around so much is that, you know, we were basically following the construction jobs. So he'd be, Mm. you know, working on one in one town and maybe that would last for two months and then they would send the crew to the next town or the next state even. And so we lived in a trailer home and my dad would just connect it to the back of his truck and we would just move to the next town. And, you know, I suppose that, you know, I, I have, I'm the oldest, obviously, with my mom being so young. Um, but I have two younger sisters, and I think that, you know, our 
family unit, you know, I, when I think about those early days, it was really like in the home, you know, like focus. I had my sisters to play with. I do remember being sad whenever my mom would tell us that we would move. And I, in the early days, I can remember just crying my little eyes out about the, that loss. But I think as time went on, I just realized that wasn't really going to do a lot of good. <laughs> and um, I think it made me really adaptable. Once I got in school, we just moved once a year, you know, so my parents did make it so that we would live in one place. And then just, you know, my dad sometimes would have to go and live in a hotel or something closer to the construction place, but then he'd come home on the weekends and that kind of thing. I, I thought a lot about it. I think it made me like adaptable, but it also made me a little bit standoffish, you know, because I, I didn't want to get too attached to people. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. But your parents, it sounds like they, they did really well because they were so young and then mm-hmm. they, they've made this kind of life for themselves where your dad's got a job and your mum's bringing up the kids. And it sounds like they were pretty together at, at that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I've thought a lot about it. I think when I was younger, I did not really realize how young they were. I mean, when you're a kid, your parents are your parents. You don't really think that there's anything unusual because you know nothing besides what you grow up with. But I have thought about how proud I was of the fact that they found a way to raise a family. And, you know, my dad has talked to me about the fact that they thought about kind of the trade-offs between taking a job where he could make more money, but that it meant that they had to move or, you know, they could have stayed in their hometown. And uh, one of the, the things that my dad said they took into consideration was that in the town where they grew up in Maryland, there was a, a military base nearby. And so I suppose like in school that they were, there would be like military kids at the school. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about military brats where they have to move around a lot. And that my mom and my dad observed that those kids seemed to be pretty well adjusted. So I think they took it into consideration. You know, they they did not think about it. And I think they just looked at it and said, okay, this is a good trade-off, right? That we can have a better life and hopefully it won't negatively impact our kids. (laughs) I love that. And so what was your relationship like with your mom at that early stage? Well, in the early stages, I, I idolized my mom. I mean, she was so young and she was really pretty. And, you know, of course, everybody loves their mom, right? But, you know, I didn't, when you're young, you just don't take a step back, right? Your mom is your mom. I do remember that sometimes she was kind of harsh with me and my sisters. I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like having three kids in a trailer. But, you know, she did some kind of crazy things a couple of times, like she would chase us with a wooden spoon and hit us with a wooden spoon and stuff like that, which... I mean, that was, that was common enough that I, uh, my sister and I would, we still sometimes talk about how you had kind of a quandary of like, do you put your hands back there or not? Because like, did it hurt worse getting hit on the hands or hit, getting hit on the butt? And both of them hurt. <laughs> they hurt in different ways. But uh, what was my relationship like? I loved my mom. You know, there's so many things that were so awesome about her. Um, and I think it was just later that I, you know, got a little distance and I started looking at and, and really examining about, you know, how I felt in my relationship with her. And it was really after my parents got divorced that things got weird. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And what about, what about your dad in the early days? Did you have a good 
relationship with him or you maybe you didn't yeah. see him too much? Well, I mean, I, I always idolize my dad too. And I think one of the things that I liked the most about my dad was that he could do so many things. He was very handy, you know, like he could do electrical work, he could do welding, he could work on cars. Um, and, and I think that the thing that I took from both of my parents was this really can-do attitude that, you know, the message that I got as a child is that if you have a goal or you have something that you want to do, you can figure out a way to do it. As far as my relationship with my dad, I really wanted to have a closer relationship with him than I did have. He is... Um, He's somebody that I think has maybe an old fashioned view of what dad should be. And I think his view was the dads go out and earn the money. The moms take care of the family and the kids. And, you know, if he was at home kind of working on something outside, he'd like let me hang out <laughs> while he was working on his truck or something like that. But he didn't really pay a lot of attention to me and he didn't really do a lot of things to say like hey let's go and play or let's let me show you what I'm doing he would just sort of like tolerate me being there <laughs> and um and I remember that sort of longing that I wished that he would have paid more attention and that you know sometimes I was just sort of like lingering or hanging out and hoping that he would you know pay more attention um, I, it's funny, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've got a relationship with them now. And one of the things I've observed with, you know, my kids and my sister's kids and stuff is that he's said before, like, oh, my favorites are the, my favorite grandchildren are the, the babies, the youngest ones. And whenever I was very young, you know, like maybe up to like age four or five, he was very, you know, affectionate, like would tickle me and like, you know, just do that kind of like wrestling around type stuff that dads do. But as I got older, I think that he just, it wasn't as fun, I guess, for him. I don't know. That's kind of how I felt. Like it just wasn't, he, he kind of would pay attention, like watch the football games or read the paper. Like he was definitely going to do the things he wanted to do first. And yeah. we kids were kind of like, well, you know, if you want to hang out in here, that's fine, but I'm not going to change anything I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's men from that generation, isn't it? And like you say, the so. expectation was that they weren't really the childcare people in the relationship. And, and I, yeah, I totally understand that feeling where you just, you really want something more from them, don't you? You just really want to, mm -hmm. you want, you want to know that they love you and they want to hang out with you, but it, just wasn't probably a part of what a lot of men were doing back then, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I, I also realize now that I'm older and I've talked to my dad never really talked a whole lot about his childhood, but I've gotten more insights into his childhood and he was the fourth of six children. And I don't think that, that there was a lot of attention paid to him when he was growing up. And I think that he really wanted that from his own dad. And so I'm not sure that he had a great you know, role model on, oh, this is how you do it. You know, I think it's that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like if you haven't kind of gone past a certain level, it's hard for you to do that for other people. And I think that he kind of looked at it like, hey, I'm taking care of the basics, right? We've got a roof over our heads. 
you know, yeah. we're, we've got plenty of food. My kids have clothes. We get to go on some little vacations here and there. He was doing his job. He's doing <laughs> his, his job. Mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's just it, like you say, it's like they don't have anything to draw on from their own experience. Mm-hmm. So often we don't even realize that there are other things that we could do. It's just, this is, I'm doing my best within the, the boundaries that I, that I know, I guess. So then your parents, so they, they sound like they're doing so well. And then at some point they, they decided to get a divorce. How far into the marriage or how, how old were you when that happened? Mm -hmm. I was 12 years old when that happened. And, you know, it's funny as I'm telling the story to, to make that, or at least, at least we hope like, oh, they're doing well. Right. And I think it was really, really difficult on my mom to move around like that. And you know, when I think back, okay, she had me, she had me about two weeks before she turned 17 years old. And, and then she had my sister when she was 19. And then she had my other sister when she was 23. So, you know, having three children by the time you're 23 years old and having them in a little trailer and moving around to new communities, it must've been really, really difficult. And then, you know, at times my dad, not even, you know, him being away for a week or two at a time because of us living someplace. And maybe he had to, I can remember at one point, like him working on a project in New York and we were in Ohio and he would fly to New York and he'd be there for two weeks and he'd just come home every other weekend. And it had to have been really difficult to have three young children and be in a town where you really didn't know many people and not have your husband around. So my understanding, and I didn't know this at the time, but I've kind of pieced it together since then is that my, my mom insisted that my dad get a job that where he didn't have to move around as much. And he got a job with the telephone company in Delaware, which is where we ended up moving. And, you know, he's told me in years since then that he was a little resentful that he took this job because it was a bit of a step back for him, but it meant that he didn't have to travel. But I think their marriage was just too, too frayed at this point. And so they ended up, you know, within a year, a couple of years of us moving there, they ended up getting divorced. And, uh, and funny enough, we, we moved out of the house that my parents had bought. My mom and me and my sisters moved down the street about two blocks. (laughs) So we lived on the same street as my dad, but it was that was the beginning of a very interesting time (laughs) yeah so what happened with your mum then at at that time because it sounds like maybe she wasn't coping with her own mental health yeah I mean I at the time I didn't recognize it as that all I you know I was a kid and when I look back from my perspective here I have a lot more empathy for her than I did at the time because she was, she was pretty mean. I felt like she was pretty mean to me, you know, but I, what I look back, I think that she was really struggling in terms of, you know, she got a job and, you know, she had, when we had moved to Delaware, she had gotten a part-time job. And quite frankly, I think it's probably her starting to build the foundation of leaving my dad. I think she recognized that she was going to need to start making some money in order to set herself up to be able to, to leave him. But she got a job at the post office. And so she was working full time and, you know, she had to keep the house and all that kind of stuff. And so she was really relying on me and my sisters to do more stuff around the house. And, you know, we were kids and weren't 
fulfilling her expectations. And so she was really very often really irritable. She, she blamed a lot on my dad, you know, she really, and she really demonized him in, in the eyes of me and my sisters, which again, looking back was um, really not the right thing to do, <laughs> you know, like that's, and I remember it feeling horrible at the time. And at first I would sort of fight against her when she would say bad things about my dad, I would fight because that hurt me. It hurt me to see him through her eyes. And I, and it wasn't fair for her to do that to me either, you know, cause that's my dad. And regardless of his strengths or weaknesses or whatever, it's not her place to do that. So I, I think I've thought about this so much. I think that there were a few, it was almost like a perfect storm. I think it was the, the stress of becoming a single parent. I think it was the stress of, you know, working full time and trying to keep a household going on her own. And then also me moving into adolescence, right? That natural starting to you know, rebel a little bit. I mean, the funny thing is when I say rebel, I was like a straight A student. I got a job when I was 14. I mean, I was a very good kid, but you know, she, if things didn't go perfectly according to her idea of how things should go, she, she would blame other people. You know, she blamed my dad. She started to blame me. She blamed, you know, she ended up getting remarried a few years later and, you know, People, I mean, these are all signs of borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder, which I did not know at the time. But, you know, nothing was ever really her responsibility. It was always somebody else's fault. And that's a really, really heavy burden to have foisted onto your shoulders as a child when you're trying to make it through the pain of your family breaking up and trying to figure out adolescence and then and then feeling like I really felt like I was walking on eggshells all the time my mom was very very unpredictable you know sometimes I mean rarely she'd be in a good mood but very often she would it was like a hair trigger like just you never really knew exactly what was going to set her off and you know and she would start yelling or um, she's very quick to, to punish, you know, like ground or take something away. And it just, I, I felt really, really helpless during that time of my teen years. Yeah. Um, it just really, I did not feel like I had support. I did not feel like I could, I could ask for things. It felt very dangerous, in fact, to ask for something or to state that I had needs. And a lot of times whenever I did, she would you know, if I said, oh, I need new, mom, I need new glasses. She'd say, talk to your father. <laughs> I'd be like, I don't want to talk to my dad because me and my sisters are really put kind of in the middle of our parents. They, she wouldn't talk to him. And so, you know, we had to be, me and my sisters had to be the ones that would have to go to my dad and tell him about the things that we needed. And, you know, he was, he was Johnny on the spot in terms of putting the check in the mailbox every week for child support. I mean, he was very supportive when it came to that, but, you know, I, obviously sometimes there's those extra things that kids need and I don't know what their deal was with that. But if me or my sisters would go and say something like, oh, we have to, we need new glasses or something like that, that he would always like kind of grumble. And that felt like I was making him unhappy 
you know, and I, I look back now and I think, well, I think it was probably that he was frustrated with my mom and maybe he was frustrated because she wasn't talking to him about it, that she was making me and my sisters do it. But it really, I, I really felt like I was, you know, quite isolated and unsupported during that time. You know, it's just like yeah. those two were like polarized and then me and my sisters were sort of in the middle, just trying to survive. Yeah. And it was, it was a very depressing time. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I could not wait to get out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that. And, and did you have a, a sense, it sounds to me like there was a sense of guilt there all the time because you, oh you're gosh. feeling like you're, you're kind of weighed down. Like I, all I need is some new shoes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you've got to kind of almost, I can't ask for it. I feel bad. I feel guilty. You know, there's so yeah. much blame and I did feel judgment. And, yeah. Yeah. That's hard, it was just a it? constant. Yeah. It was a constant feeling uh, of guilt and, you know, it, it definitely impacted my personality and the way that I looked at the world. I mean, I was very driven to be self-sufficient, you know, and working and even, even until now, I would say even until a few years ago, I, I didn't slow down. I, I just said, okay, I got to keep going. I have to have control in my life. I can't allow others to have an impact on my life. Like what was happening back then. I, I mean, I, my husband is wonderful. I've been married to him for 25 years, but it took some time in the beginning for me to really trust him. And, you know, in fact, I, I had a, a surgery where I didn't have a choice, but to have him care for me in a way that I normally wouldn't have felt comfortable doing. And that was probably a big turning point for me in terms of realizing that I could trust somebody to care for me when I was at my most vulnerable. We were dating at the time and we lived together, but I I think I finally started relaxing a little bit to realize like, I can trust this man to care for me in this way. Um, Because I had not felt like that before. I felt like I really had to be pretty hypervigilant and I had to, I had to make sure that I had my ducks in a row because it was too uncertain with both of my parents, you know, with my dad saying, well, okay, I, I wrote the check and I put it in the mailbox, you know, I'm done. <laughs> and my mom, you know, just completely freaking out about wanting to have so much control that there really was no room for kids growing up and being kids it just was really, is a really tough place to be. It's, it's just, as I talk about it, I still I get like kind of almost a tight feeling in my chest and throat because it was so, I felt like I was in a straight jacket. Just didn't yeah. feel like a lot of room to maneuver. You can't breathe. You can't speak. Yeah. And yeah. it's bad. It's abandonment, isn't it? It's, it's, mm-hmm. there's nobody there. You can't rely on anybody. There's nobody there for you. And that's, that's a really, really difficult one to deal with, I think. Yeah, it's the emotional abandonment because it wasn't, I mean, I think that one of the things that was maybe even kind of difficult was that all of our physical needs were cared for. You know, like my sisters and I were well-dressed, we were well-fed. Um, you know, my mom would like throw these big, like our Christmases were like picture perfect. But, you know, when you were saying earlier, like if, if you needed something, you know, needed a new shirt or, or something like that. So I can remember saying to my mom, like enough to mom, I need new underwear, wait for Christmas. <laughs> it's just, like we would have a gazillion gifts under the trees at Christmas, you know, but she would 
she would save everything up for this big gala thing that was like so perfect. And we had to get our pictures taken and all of this. And it really, what felt so weird was that it really didn't matter if we were having a good time or not. It just mattered if it looked like we were having a good time. And that was, you know, that made me distrust people and situations a lot also, you know, because it wasn't often if I spoke what I thought was the truth, I'd get in trouble for it. My mom would, if I said, I I remember one time saying that our family was dysfunctional, (laughs) which it was. And, and her saying, if you wanted to hurt me, you, you really did that. If you wanted to hurt me. And I was like, I'm just telling the truth. Um, And it's, you know, it was like hard to, to not have somebody recognize that or see that I was in pain, you know, it just was really, it was hard. And was there anybody else at all in your world that you were able to talk to or reach out to? Yes, there was, you know, my mom got remarried when I I guess I'm trying to think I was probably about 15 or 16 years old. She got remarried and the, the man that she married, he was from the town we lived in and his mother lived there. And so she became sort of my, my grandmother and she was so kind and often just would, you know, there's just little, little compliments that she gave me and just her warmth and acceptance. She just actually died last year. She was 98 years old and I saw her, I mean, she's back in Delaware and I'm here in Illinois, but I saw her a couple years before that um, for her 95th birthday. I went back for her birthday and she's, she was just so wonderful. You know, she would always say like, honey, come over and sit down and tell me what's going on with you. Or, you know, she would just say things like, you have such a cute figure or you girls are so smart. You know, she just was always had like kind, she's very kind and accepting And that was, you know, that was really like water on parched ground, you know, and, and uh, I know that my sisters feel the same way that she just was, she was a very important person to us. And, you know, it wasn't, it was funny. She, she just was like very down to earth and very accepting. And she didn't really worry about a lot of the things that my mom worried about in terms of like, how do things look? And worrying about things being perfect. And in fact, you know, one of the things that my mom got really frustrated with her about is that my grandmother was always like running late, you know? So if my mom was gonna do a dinner, you know, um, my mom would be 15 or 20 minutes late. And I was always kind of like, and my mom would get super frustrated. And I was like, why don't you just plan that she's gonna be 15 or 20 minutes late? Cause she is right. And we're not gonna don't criticize her for it. Just know that's how she is. It's okay. Yeah. So it's just that beautiful energy that, that this other person brings to your life, isn't it? That you never forget because the energy every day is, is so tight and stressful and difficult. And then you know that there's this one person who will always just bring beautiful light and energy and, oh, we just need those people, don't we, in our lives? And we never forget those people. Yeah. Yeah. She just was so nice about, you know, even things like, I can remember being a young teen and her saying she would do like a, a New Year's Eve party at her house for all of the the kids. So for her just to say like, I'm just going to do something for the kids and we would go and then our parents could go out. But it was just nice because, you know, I didn't feel like my mom would probably want to sacrifice that way. And she didn't look at it that way. She just, I think she enjoyed it, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do this for the young kids. And she probably got joy out of it 
and certainly yeah. we did. It was nice to be respected as a, a person and have somebody do something that that she knew we would enjoy. Yeah. And so was there an element of depression with you as a teen? Yeah. 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 There was. I mean, you know, it's funny because I I mean, I've been figuring this stuff out for decades. <laughs> you know, I've been looking back and wondering about certain things that I did. And I'll just give you an example is that I had two boyfriends in high school that I dated for a couple years apiece. And for a long time, I mean, this might sound a little bit funny, but for a long time, I always would judge myself. I'd look back and say, you know, maybe you could have gotten a better boyfriend than that. You know, like that maybe they weren't quite up to my standard or something like that. But what I realized was that I needed love. I needed somebody to care about me. And that on some level, I also needed to make sure that I was with somebody that wasn't going to leave me. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying like, there wasn't anything wrong. I mean, these were nice boys that I, that I was in relationships with, you know, and it was, when I look back, I just think it wasn't like super exciting or anything like that, but it was, it was a solid enough relationship. And I don't think that I gave myself credit for me getting what I needed back then. But now I look back and I say, that's good that I had that stability in my life. And I had somebody that would care about me, you know, and I, and I'm proud of myself for getting that because I, I needed it. You know, it was, it would have been really depressing if I, I didn't have something else to focus on outside of just coming to my house, which just felt so oppressive. Yeah. And I guess that's what happens with teenagers, isn't it? Because we're all looking for love. That's what we, we all want love. We all want acceptance. And you're lucky that you found two really good, decent guys, because I guess a lot of people find a bunch of kids with drugs or they find something that's really a really negative thing. So Mm -hmm. the fact that the fact that you found those two guys to give you that kind of love that you needed at that Mm -hmm. acceptance at that time, you know, that was such a beautiful, positive thing really to have in your life. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was. So, and what about with your sisters at that time? Did you all kind of work together or was that, how did that relationship go when you were getting through you know, those it's, times? It's funny. It was at times, I mean, one thing, it definitely was a bit of, we were all trying to survive. And, you know, when my mom would kind of fly off the handle and a lot of times she would, she would like fly off the handle and then she would leave the room and we'd all be sitting there sort of like shell shocked. And we would say to each other, she's crazy (laughs) because it was the only thing that made any sense to what was going on. And it was also like a way of holding on to reality, right? Because if you got swept up in the, in the power of her emotions, you could, you know, you could really be in like a a whirlpool of confusion. Um, And so I think that that was, I feel very thankful that I wasn't an only child because I think that you could really, you know, now they call it gaslighting because a lot of times she would maybe like walk back in the room 10 minutes later and pretend like nothing ever happened. And I always kind of wondered, like, did she dissociate or did she, is she just embarrassed and she's just acting like nothing happened? I never really knew, but that was really crazy making, right? Because you'd be like, okay, somebody just like 
you know, blew up a bomb in here and then walked out and came back in and pretended like nothing happened, you know, and we'd still be like shocked from, from the aftershock. But so there was some of that, but there's also some, you know, we all were, I, I kind of think of it as like a litter of puppies, a big litter of puppies, and there's not enough places for the puppies to nurse <laughs> you know what I mean and then and they're like fighting each other to get the attention and that's what we did I mean I know that my sister that's right next to me she's not quite as extroverted as I am and you know if my mom would get home from work and I wanted to talk to her I'd be really assertive about mom mom I want to talk to you and and a lot of times she was just sort of like checked out right so you try to like kind of get her attention and I would like talk louder or I would, you know, follow her around. And my sister, you know, she was, she was angry and jealous that maybe I was getting attention that she felt like she needed. And it really wasn't, I mean, I think she perceived it like I was hogging up all the attention, but the reality was that I wasn't getting any kind of attention either. I was trying, but I wasn't getting it. And she and I, you know, so there was like this rivalry for my mom's attention when we were, we were teenagers. And later when we were in our twenties, actually my sister went to a therapist and that actually was the first thing that like pulled the blinders off in terms of like, we really thought my mom was perfect. I mean, even though we, even though we knew she was crazy and we said she was crazy, we totally bought into her view of what our family was, how she was, she defined everything in the family and we bought into it, even though we felt bad. You know, there was like a real uh, conflict between how I felt inside and uh, what I was being told was going on, right? And I bought into what, was being to- what I was being told because I wanted that love so badly. And I kept thinking if I just try harder, if I get her the right gift, if I just, if I, if I can just be different, maybe she's gonna start caring for me. If I can be perfect enough, maybe she'll start caring for me the way I need to be cared for. And uh, you know, that really caused me to sort of like abandon myself in many ways. I wasn't paying attention to like, what did I want? I was paying attention to what she wanted. And I was really trying to give her everything that she wanted. And you know, it, that doesn't work by the way. <laughs> like yeah. Not that anybody doesn't know that. But, you know, you just don't have enough perspective when you're young to recognize that. And, you know, it was it was probably in my mid to late 20s before I finally started waking up to what was really going on. And then it still took years until I was really ready to cut the apron strings. It was actually when my first child was born and I was actually my mom had sent me a very strange gift and I wasn't sure what to think about it. Cause it was not a, it wasn't a gift that was really appropriate for me in the kind of person that I am, but I was like, okay, well, she did send me a gift and it's an expensive gift. And, and I was like, I was spending a few days kind of contemplating, like, what do I want to do about this? Cause it's not an appropriate gift for me, but it's expensive and it's nice that she sent it. And, and before I ever had the chance to respond, she sent um, she worked at the post office, as I mentioned, she sent this official form that you send when a registered package is stolen or lost. So instead of her calling and saying, did you get the, 
gift, she just made an assumption like, well, since I haven't heard, it must have been stolen. So I'm going to send this official like insurance inquiry. And I was laying in bed crying because I was already confused. I was laying in bed crying and my husband, and my baby were out in the kitchen. My husband was feeding my son breakfast and I'm laying in bed crying and I could hear my husband talking to my son and he was, you know, he was probably, he's less than a year, I think. And he's like babbling and everything. And I finally, it woke me up. I said, what the heck am I doing? I'm laying in bed crying about this person who's been manipulating me for my whole life. And my, my husband and my baby, this is my family are out in the other room and I'm wasting my time laying in bed crying. So I got up. I grabbed the gift. I threw it in the box. I, I said to my husband, I asked him to return the gift, you know, take it to the post office and mail it, mail it back. And I put a note in with it just saying like, don't send me any more gifts and don't, don't be in contact. So that was sort of the beginning of, that was the beginning of the end, but the beginning of the beginning yeah, <laughs> of <yeah>. my life. <laughs> wow. So it's amazing, isn't it? That we live in entrenched in these lives where we don't see any of these things and then all of a sudden one day we just have this realization and it's like actually i don't want to be treated like this i deserve so much better i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So what did you actually do from that point? Well, I mean, I've done so much since then. Um, I had been reading books and stuff up until that point, and but it was right around that time that I discovered borderline personality disorder. And weirdly enough, I mean, I don't know if you believe in the supernatural or whatever, but I'm, I've been amazed sometimes about some things that have happened with me. And one of them is that I was at work one day, right around this time, and I was walking down the hallway to the ladies' room, and I, I felt like... I felt like there was a voice that whispered in my ear, narcissistic personality disorder, which is a weird thing for somebody to whisper in your ear. There was nobody there, just something that came in my ear. When I got back to my desk, I went out on you know, Yahoo and Google wasn't even around then, but I went out and, and looked that up. And I didn't really find a lot on narcissistic personality disorder, but I did find a lot on borderline personality disorder. And when I started reading about it, I was, I, I was floored because my mom had seven out of the nine symptoms of borderline personality disorder. And there's a book out now that is kind of a seminal book called Stop Walking on Eggshells. And it's about borderline personality disorder. And at this time, this was like the late 90s. It was a pamphlet. <laughs> I don't even know. It might have even been free online. And I remember I printed it off. I made copies for everybody in my family. And I sent it to everyone because all of those years when we had been saying like, she's crazy, she's crazy. I just thought she was like irritable and mean and all of this kind of stuff. I didn't know there was a diagnosis for it. And, you know, when every, my sisters and my dad read it, they were like, oh my gosh, like 
yes, absolutely. This is what we've experienced with her. So it was, you know, it was helpful to, I mean, she would never be diagnosed because I mean, one of the things with both narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder is that, you know, I think the self is just not strong enough to take responsibility for anything that's not positive, you know? And so that they tend to like blame other people for things because they really can't take the weight of that. But, you know, I don't think there's any doubt, honestly, if she were to see a, a psychologist that they would, or psychiatrist, that they would diagnose that. But, you know, for me, it was helpful to know that there was a reason for that. And the reason wasn't that I was a bad person, because yes. there had been a lot of, there had been a lot of blaming and shaming over the years. And I, you know, my mom had labeled me quite a lot, you know, that I was difficult, that I was selfish and all of this. And, you know, that was, that was such a heavy burden, you know, to, to think like I'm difficult. I didn't have a positive view of myself, even though I, you know, I was a pretty girl when I was in high school and I, I was very involved. I was a good student. I mean, I had everything going for me, but I sure didn't feel like it. I, I, I felt like no matter what I did, that I was never good enough um, because that was, that was my reality with, you know, the person that's most important in terms of reflecting back to me, you know, what she saw, she, you know, she wasn't reflecting back something positive. Well, I, what I would say is that there were a few things that she was very keyed into like academics, you know, and when I made the honor society and stuff like that, that she, that was just the best. But there were a lot of other things that I was involved in that she really didn't care about. And it didn't matter if I was doing well in cheerleading or tennis or something like that, that she just was like, that wasn't of interest to her. You know, she wasn't going to get any like, you know, halo effect from that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so you've read a lot of books. Is yeah. there any other other things that you've done on your healing journey? That Oh, my gosh. Important? I've done so much, Dawn, on my healing journey. I've, <laughs> you know, I've, I've gone to therapy on and off for a long time. I had a therapist that had me go through dialectical behavior training, which is that was actually very helpful because they actually use dialectical DBT with, with people who are being treated for uh, BPD. Um, and what it, what it means is that two things can be true at the same time, right? Like for example, I deserved love and I deserved to have a loving mother, but I didn't have one. It didn't mean that I was bad because I wasn't loved the way that I deserved to be, right? These are two separate things. But what I thought back then was because I wasn't loved, I wasn't deserving, right? And when you start to separate these things and say, both of them can be true at the same time, you can deserve it and not get it. It doesn't mean that you're bad and it doesn't mean you don't deserve it. So that was very helpful to sort of start looking at the world a little bit differently because when you are raised by somebody who has mental illness, a lot of times, even if, even if you're not mentally ill, they used to, I was on a Actually, I was on a, a discussion board for a long time, like a self-help board that was actually related to the Stop Walking on Eggshells, where a lot of people who were children of borderline personality disorder parents, it was, you know, like a support group type thing. And we would talk about BPD fleas, meaning that a lot of times when you're raised by somebody who has a mental illness, that you'll model their behaviors because that's what you see. 
and it doesn't, if you get into a different situation because it's not sort of like clinically within you, you can start modeling different behaviors. Whereas somebody who like has that personality disorder, they're not gonna be able to, if they're removed, they're still gonna take those ways of dealing with them. Um, so that I, I went to like a week long retreat, which, which through this thing called the Hoffman process, um, which in some ways I think it's, it's almost like a week long reparenting exercise. You know, like we, we did a lot of processing, lots of like writing letters, lots of, they, they just had, you know, from eight o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock at night, they had exercises all day long. Um, and every day was different to help like process and get perspective on the things that had happened to us in those early years of growing up and to recognize the gaps and start to think like, how do I want to refill this? How do I want to parent myself, right? If I didn't get the parenting I needed, what do I need to do now to care for myself? Um, and that was, that was really helpful. And then, you know, in the last few years, I have, um, I've gone to somebody who is a Reiki master and she's also a therapist. And that's been great because I felt like even though I made tremendous progress with these other modalities that I, I literally felt like there was trapped energy in my body. You know, I just felt like there were some hard places in my body. And so this lady that I go to, I absolutely love her. Um, you know, we'll do an hour of therapy. And then at the end, she'll, uh, the hour, she'll say, well, these are the things I heard. What would you like to work on in terms of like the, the body energy work? And the interesting thing is that, uh, I mean, I, I'm kind of a little bit of a skeptical person, but after having experienced this, I really think there's something to it. There was a lot of trapped, often very young energy, like maybe where I had to swallow my own emotions. And, you know, she would just sort of like, I can't even explain how she does it, but help me to release this emotion. Like she has kind of a massage table that, and she doesn't even really touch me. You know, she just kind of uses her, her hands and has me envision things. And I, I cried a lot <laughs> over, over the times, but like weird, weirdly young trapped emotion from maybe even infancy up through different phases of my life. There's probably a place in my body where this was being stuffed and stuffed and stuffed and stuffed. And I've, I've seen her for a few years now, and it's usually just, you know, I'll, I'll go and she does this. And I mean, she calls it sort of like psychic surgery. And there have been times whenever I've gone and I had to come home and stay in bed for a day because it really was like psychic surgery. I mean, it really was like finding something that was stuck, almost like a tumor of emotion stuck in my body and having that released and then having to recover from that. That sounds amazing. I think that all of this trauma it does make people very sick. Yes, it does. And I look at people who have whatever kind of diseases or illnesses or conditions, and I'm sure that it's it's all that stuff that we're holding on to and we mm -hmm. never release it. So that sounds so good that you've you've had that release. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Especially yeah. especially if you had to sleep for <laughs> that amount of time. It really yeah. shows something was happening there for you that's that's really right 
What about books? Because you mentioned Stop Walking on Eggshells before. Are there any other books that have been really important for your healing? I, mean, I, I can't even tell you how many books that I've read. But, um, you know, there was there have been a number of number of books about and I, I don't have the titles off the top of my head, but like narcissistic motherhood, you know, books about that, that that helped me understand, right? And because when you're so close to a situation and there's negative things going on, and especially when you're young and you don't have any perspective, you naturally think that you caused this bad situation to happen. And so for me to get perspective and understand like, oh, there's like different archetypes and also to understand that unfortunately, you know, my mom did not get what she needed in her childhood. And this, this personality disorder came because that was her, that was the way she learned to cope, to get her needs met. And it wasn't effective for when she became a mother, it wasn't like truly a healthy and effective way of being, but you know, she was able to get her needs met. She was just trying to survive, I guess. But some of the, some of the other books that these aren't really about understanding mental illness, but it were empowering to me. There's one called The Art of Selfishness, which was very, I think it might be out of print, but you can probably find it at a used bookstore or something. That was really an eye-opener for me that I probably read it in my teens or early 20s, that taking care of yourself first is okay and it's the smart thing to do and that was that was a huge eye-opener for me because that wasn't how I was raised you know I was raised to like worry about mom like what does mom want not what does Terry want um, another one that was really uh, helpful for me was and these are <laughs> from like the 80s or something but the other one is called courage is a three-letter word and the word is yes and the whole idea is that if you want to make progress you know, you're probably going to be scared and that's okay, but you, you need to move forward anyway. And so I, I think that that opened up my eyes to realize that if I did feel fearful about making, you know, taking action, that that was just all part of it. And this book, it has lots of stories about people who did big things, you know, people that are famous that we know of, and they talked about what it felt like to do those things. And, you know, what you realize is that like they didn't, they moved ahead, not without fear, but just in spite of their fear. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you have a relationship with your mother at all after you cut that relationship? Yeah, it was, you know, she, she had a really hard time as I became an adult, you know, and wanted to maybe not come home for Christmas every year and stuff like that. I think it was really hard for her and she didn't handle it very well. I have tried a few times to kind of pick things back up. Funny enough is she's, she's married to her third husband now and they moved to Illinois years before my family and I moved here. They live a few hours away, but we got together two or three times for lunch in the city and and a couple of the times were were good the last time that i saw her was a little traumatizing for me and her i think um she accused me of stealing something from her house which was absolutely ridiculous actually it was a it was a dress that had been my dress when i was a little girl there's a picture of me in it when i was probably two two years old and when I saw her for lunch, I brought a picture of my daughter in that dress. And when she saw it, she had a, she started crying and she got up and left 
she left the table. And I think that it was probably triggered by maybe that feeling of loss because she never actually has met my children. And she never asked to see my children, but she never has met them. And she came back from the bathroom about 15, 20 minutes later. I mean, I literally was sitting there thinking, should I leave? I don't know, where is she? And she came back and and she said, I feel very violated because obviously you stole that dress from my house. And I, I was like, she lives in Delaware or she lived in Delaware like years before and I lived in North Carolina. It wasn't possible. I would have never even known that dress existed, but I could not remember how I got it. And when I got home from that lunch, I called my sister and I said, oh my God, the weirdest thing happened. And I told her, and she said, I know exactly how you got that dress. She said, when my sister was the first to have children, and she said, when I was pregnant with my oldest child, mom sent me a big, you know, like garbage bag full of clothes because she did actually have a child with her, her second husband. That's my, my half sister. And so she had baby clothes that weren't super old, you know, and she sent them to my sister when my sister was having her first child and that dress was in there. And my sister, because she knew the picture of me, she knew that that had been my dress. So she sent it to me and I had it in, I had it in my kid's closet. My first two child children are boys. I had it in the closet for years. And, and I remember like at one point looking and saying, I wonder if that would fit her. And I put it on her. It, it barely fit her. It was, I, I just took a picture of her in it and she wore it one day, but I thought my mom would get a kick out of it. And she didn't. <laughs> um, and, and I remember like, she was so dissociated, like she was almost like in a trance. And when we walked outside of the restaurant, you know, I said, mom, I'm, I'm right here. Like we could have a relationship if you want to, you know, but she, she couldn't, she couldn't handle it. Right. She, I, I really think it had to do with her not being able to process the emotions around the loss that me and my, you know me and my family had been moving along and I'd been having my life and she wasn't part of it. And um, I was very upset too, because it really triggered a lot in me in terms of like her blaming me for something that was not even possible. It wasn't even possible. You know, I would, uh, can you imagine saying like, oh, I know that there was a dress that existed 40 years ago. Let me go and dig in my mother's house and see if I can find it and steal it. It just was insane. Um, just think it's so hard isn't it because it's so ridiculous but you know you must have been looking at your mum and she's so serious about it it's it's hard to kind of know what to do with that because yeah what do you, what do, you do what do you say exactly I was I I was I was completely blindsided by this like who could have ever imagined I thought I mean I wouldn't have brought that picture if I knew it was going to trigger her in that way obviously I thought that she would think it was cute. It was just another instance of her not being able to process her own emotions and wanting to dump them on somebody else. And I, I've had conversations with people many times over the years about the decisions I've made about, you know, the kind of relationship I have with my mom or non-relationship I have with my mom. And I've, you know, sometimes I've been cautious about sharing the fact that we're estranged with people because there's a lot of judgment around it. You know, people I've had, I can remember in college saying something one time sort of, 
I wasn't estranged from my mom at the time, but I was sort of complaining about, I hadn't really processed or figured out what was going on, but I remember saying something one time and one of my friends saying like, how could you ever talk about your mother like that? You know, shaming me for it. And, you know, of course I felt bad. And at the time I was like, well, I'm never gonna share this kind of stuff with people anymore. But now I look at it and I realize like, when you're shaming me, you're thinking about your mom. You're not, you don't know my mom. You're not thinking about my mom. And if you were in my situation, maybe you would do the same thing. Maybe you wouldn't, but it doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to care for myself. I'm going to care for my family. And I do think that the best thing that I ever did was, was, you know, staunch the bleeding of energy out of me so that I could focus my energy on healing and building a good family with my husband. And I, I, I do not regret that at all. I mean, I'm sad for my mom, um, you know, and, but I, I just don't think that she knows how to be different. And I don't think it's fair to me to be abused. You know, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I also don't, you know, sometimes people will say like, oh my gosh, you, your mom's never met your kids. And I was like, well, I don't want to expose them to her because she is very manipulative. She's very seductive and she's very manipulative, you know, and she's, she did this to me and my sisters many, many times where, you know, she, she can be nice for a while and she, she can give gifts and she can do things to try to get you back in her you know, into her orbit. And then as soon as you're back in, she can't maintain that, you know, she'll start to be abusive. And I I went through that cycle way too many times. And I felt stupid. I felt ashamed. I felt horrible. I felt hurt way too many times for getting suckered into coming in once again and being hurt. You know, it's just, I I came in because I wanted to be loved. Didn't want to be shamed or criticized or yeah and it's just it's just amazing that you've managed to have that self-love enough to say that that's what's happening I am putting myself and my family before somebody that I can't rely on Mm -hmm. and it's it's such an important thing and if you can never do that, then you just living, you can live in chaos your whole life, right? Because you can't, right. you're just living with that, that person and everything that they bring. So it's so difficult to cut a parent out of your life. But if, if it's so damaging, it's absolutely what you have to do. And it's, um, it's very strong that you've been able to do that. So how do you think that your childhood has impacted your life journey? You know, I I think that having to move around so much, it made me very adaptable, very self-sufficient. I think that in some ways, the example that my parents set for me and my sisters, you know, that, hey, we can go out and make our own way. I mean, that's what they did. They were so young and they did that. Um, that, that. That really kind of put a streak in me that of, of self-sufficiency and self-determination. Um, I also think that because uh, I think I was saying earlier about my strengths and my superpowers that a lot of times we don't, we're not really aware of them because they're just so innate. 
but I've had some time to think about the fact that I'm able to, I'm very intuitive. I'm able to recognize um, patterns very easily. I'm able to like clue into very subtle changes. And I, I do think that, you know, my mom's, uh, you know, her behavior um, kind of made me very sensitive to noticing things like that. And, and I think that um, all of those things have served me really, really well, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, working in, in big complex corporations, like I was able to to tolerate a lot of ambiguity. Sometimes in the middle of you know chaotic situations, I'm able to, you know, just be pretty calm and just look around and figure out what's going on and try to make order of it. Yeah, um, and I think that that comes from having had to do that quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So Terry, you're an executive and career coach and you have a book called Winning the Game of Work. And you've also recently started a podcast called Marketing Mambo. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, tell us everything about what you're up to. Well, you know, as an executive and career coach, I work with people that are what I call successful, but not satisfied. And what I mean by that is that they're paying a high price for their success meaning they're, they're might be stressed or, you know, uh, time crunched, feeling a little burnout. And what I really try to help people do is shift their mindset. So they're in more of a solutions oriented mindset. And then also um, try to identify where there might be skill gaps so that they can have the same amount of impact with less effort, you know, so, so they have more time to enjoy their lives. So they can move from successful but not satisfied to really having a lot of overlap between their professional success and their personal happiness. My book uh, really comes from when I left my last job, started blogging about some of the lessons that I learned. And after a while, I realized that I probably had the seeds of a book. And so I decided to write a book that's, it's a kind of a combination of stories from my own career and I interviewed a bunch of people about their careers and I, I put a lot of exercises in the book as well, just to help people sort of step back and maybe see the bigger picture about what they can do to be more successful. Cause I know there's a lot of people working really hard at work and not really getting the results that they would like or expect. And um, you know, as I say, sometimes it's because they don't realize work is a game and they don't know the rules. There's that. And then finally, the Marketing Mambo, I, I just started this uh, at the beginning of this year. And, you know, I actually, as a coach, work with a lot of people in marketing and advertising because of my own background working as a marketer. Uh, you know, I really understand some of the challenges that people have working in that profession. And um, I was talking with one of my clients who's a marketing consultant in December, and we just ended up having a super interesting conversation about marketing. And she said, you know, this is such an interesting conversation. It would make a great podcast. <laughs> and I thought, well, why not? I, I actually miss talking to marketers about marketing. So that's what it's about. It's, you know, interesting perspectives on marketing. It's not a how-to. It's, you know, tell me about your thoughts about marketing or challenges or tell me about how you got started or what your job is. Um, and I've had, I've had a great opportunity to talk to a lot of super interesting people. Awesome. I love the sound of the book when you're talking about you don't know the rules of business and then it's like a game. That sounds fascinating to me. You've heard my story and I 
I mentioned that I was very driven because I wanted more control in my life, right? I did not want to live in the middle of this chaos. And so I really, I think I focused a lot of my energy on school. And then once I got out of school on having a successful career and because I come from a blue collar background, I did not have anybody, you know, with a corporate background that was going to tell me this is how you, this is the rules or anything like this. I, I was figuring it out for myself. I was, I was like reading books and observing people. And a lot of times I was really confused about why did that just happen? Or why did that person get promoted and this person didn't? I, I was lucky at uh, a couple points to have some good mentors. And I, I think of them as people that pulled the curtain back and started pointing out what was really going on. Because a lot of times in the workplace, we can just look at things on the surface and not understand that there's like a whole world behind that. And the book is really about helping people to understand like what's going on behind that curtain. Because once you understand that, then you can start maneuvering in a way, right? And one of the things that I've noticed about a lot of people that I've worked with is that they are high achievers, right? So they're hard workers, they're smart, they have a lot of talents. Um, and if they run into an obstacle or any trouble, their instinct is to work harder, to go faster, to try to do more. And that's not sustainable forever. Right. And especially, yeah. you know, like, especially for women and, you know, when we have families and stuff like that, that sometimes it's, we get frustrated. Right. And because there's just not enough time in the day. And what I really encourage people to do is like, instead of stepping forward, instead of putting the, the pedal to the metal and trying to go faster, step back. If we're using like the pedal to the metal, like instead of driving your car 90 miles an hour down the, the highway, pull over to the side you know, pull out your map, figure out if there's a better way to get to where you want to go. Think about if there are different ways to do things. And, and I talk about a lot of techniques, you know, and, and ways to shift the mindset, but also things like leverage points. A lot of times uh, we'll, we'll just say, ah, oh, it's just faster for me to do it. Or, you know, we don't really think about how can I get more output with less energy? Yeah. Like that's what true leaders do. And people don't teach that a lot of times, a lot of times, like even managers will, you know, they may model bad behavior because they've never been taught. Right. So this is just yeah. a way to start thinking about things differently. So you get more, you have more impact. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that sounds amazing. Thank you so much, Terry, for sharing your story with us today. It, it is heartbreaking to hear about losing a parent out of your life. And especially hearing that, that you also get criticized for that when it's what you have to do in order to create the life that you need for your family. It was really great to connect with you today. And thank you so much for sharing. Well, thanks for having me. And I, I hope that by me telling my story that some other people, you know, if they've experienced something similar that they realize that it's not their fault and that we all deserve to have happiness and feel good about ourselves in our lives. Check the show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode. Come and follow me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it.
You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.